Thanks for joining me on episode 42 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. Today is the interview episode with Dr. Megan Milbreth. Dr. Milbreth began working bees with her father as a child over 20 years ago, and she now owns and manages the Sand Hill Apiary, which is a small livestock and queen rearing operation. She is also an academic specialist at Michigan State University, where she does honeybee and pollinator research and also works extension and is the coordinator of the Michigan Pollinator Initiative. She writes a lot. She also has a wonderful website, which I will put in the show notes, sandhillbees.com. Has a lot of good articles on there for everyone to go read. Titles like Swarm Biology and Control in Northern States, Diagnosing and Treating American Fowl Brood, Sustainable Beekeeping Using Late Season Nukes, and on and on. So there's a lot of good information there. Without further ado, I will jump into the interview. Today, I am very excited to have with me on the line Dr. Megan Milbreth of Michigan. I have been a super fan of Dr. Milbreth for some time. Megan, welcome. Thank you very much. Great. Well, tell me what you're up to these days. Well, um, lots of things that are bee-related. So I work full-time at Michigan State University. I do half research, half extension there on mostly honeybees, but other pollinators as well. And then we, we, we're in the time of year where we just got snow. So in my own bee yard, and it's slowed down quite a bit. Snow. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we, we're about to get cold, but it's, it's way early for us. But I have nothing but respect for you guys up in the true, the true cold zones. Well, and I just got back from a visit with the Alberta Beekeepers Association last night, and I feel like they might get the the true award for true cold. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, that's nothing to make you grateful, like going a few zones north. Well, how many hives are you running these days? Um, while I'm working, I usually try to stay between 70 and 100. I got up to about 120 this year, um, including smaller hives. I, I do a lot of splits, so... It is a very variable number, but, you know, on the, the small sideliner side. Great. Now, I have a, a question. On your website, I was very, um, it seemed like you were, had been selling nucleus colonies. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed uh, a, an update, and tell me if this is still current, that you were encouraging people to have a closed apiary. And mm-hmm. that you were concerned that selling nukes might contribute to bad beekeeping. Tell me about what what is a closed apiary and what you mean by by that about selling nukes. Sure. Well, there's there's a couple of things involved there. One of them is that I started to work with veterinarians. So with my job at Michigan State, I actually run a rotation through the veterinary school um, for fourth year veterinary students, and then we do continuing education both online and in person um, and at conferences with veterinarians. And once I started to talk to them, it really gave me a sense of how bad most beekeepers are at biosecurity. You know, with other animal systems, people are really careful before they, you know, introduce a outside flock of chickens or they, you know, pig veterinarians won't even talk to each other in person. And people talk about covering on their shoes when they go to visit other farms. And beekeepers just swap equipment and bees all the time and you know we are dealing with huge problems with diseases and so I think 
it's it's not that you can't purchase bees from other people, but I think to take that act a little more seriously and, and realize that, you know, even though I completely stand behind the bees that I sell and I do everything I can to reduce disease transmission, nothing is sterile. And so to, to kind of take that act of purchasing bees and bringing things into your yard more seriously, even if you have complete trust in the seller. And um, so, so that was a, a big part of it. The other thing is that, um, you know, when you're selling nukes, your business model is depending on absolute beginners, which is wonderful. But then I was starting to have a lot of repeat customers. <laughs> yeah. And there was this, and, and it's hard because, you know, I'm, I, I need the money. You know, the reason I was selling bees was because it's, it's part of my business. And I do have this habit of wanting to eat food every day that I have to pay for. And so I do need the money, but then I, it, it was really difficult knowing that people kind of knew like, oh, well, I can just get new ones next year. And I, I think one of the things is when it becomes so easy to get new bees, we kind of don't try as hard as we can to take advantage of the ones that we have. And, you know, there's definitely people have bad years and people, you know, the learning curve is really um, steep to try to get a handle on Varroa. Um, so there are a lot of losses that happen, but there were a lot of people, too, that they wanted to expand. And, you know, instead of expanding out of the bees that they have and taking advantage and making splits, they were just like, oh, it's just quicker and easier to, to buy some. So it, it, it didn't um, – I, I do still sell some nukes. Um, and, and part of my the reason that I stopped selling them, too, is less dramatic and is just that I do a lot of research during blueberry bloom, which in Michigan coincides with the time of year that you would make nukes. And so just time-wise, you know, my research feels very important. And I, I couldn't do both, so... That makes sense. Are there any particular diseases that, uh, and I hear your background as an epidemiologist coming in, are there any particular mm -hmm. diseases that you are uh, feeling might be moving around or new to the U.S. or anything like that? Um, well, the, the viruses are definitely moving around quite a bit, and they're not necessarily new to the U.S., but I think they're in higher levels, um, especially the varroa-associated ones, so varroa, sometimes people call them deformed wing virus A and deformed wing virus B, and we are kind of in the transition where B is starting to come in a lot more. Um, we're also seeing a replacement where we hardly see Nosema apis anymore, and that's kind of being replaced by Nosema serrani. So those are kind of two situations where it's not necessarily new, new, but we're seeing a shift in what used to be there. Um, the disease that I spend most of my time on is European fall brood. And again, like that is a disease we've known since like the 1700s we characterized it. So it's by no means new, but it's much more widespread. Um, and it seems to be lingering longer and it seems to be much worse than we'd seen it in the past. And sometimes it presents a little differently. So it doesn't look as classic. Um, so I think the, the diseases are changing quite a bit. It sounds like it, uh, our bee inspector mentioned that there had been a, a kind of wave of it through our area a couple of uh, years ago, and then it just made it up the mountains to us. I think in the last couple of years in the area, people have had some trouble with it. Well, in in terms of a of a of a closed apiary, in terms of biosecurity, does that include are are you hesitant now to bring in queens from other queen producers, or is it mostly brood and comb? 
It's mostly brewed in chrome. I do love bringing in. I love trying out fancy queens. Anybody that knows me knows that I like just to work with new queens. And, oh, I'm and so relieved because I do too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really, I mean, well, and it's, you know, you want to have genetic diversity. And, and, and one of the things, because it's changing so quickly and everything, you know, we we have these waves of things happening over the course of a couple of years, you know, or even like within a season, your disease pressure may completely change. So I think it's really important to have a lot of diversity in your region. And, you know, you don't necessarily know, like, I don't know what bee I'm going to want in 10 or 15 years from now. You know, everything changes so dramatically. So it's nice to have kind of a diverse stock to pull from and to see who does better um, which year. So my, my big concern is, is first the comb and then, you know, the bees that come in. Right. Yeah. And when you say that you like to try out new queens, are there any particular kind of queens that you're excited about? Like, um, I know that there, there's some with the grooming behavior and then the, the classic VSH. And uh, are there any that you're particularly interested in trying out in your yard? Yeah. So I kind of have two two kind of classes that I incorporate. So I, I do try to buy bees that are coming out of breeding, breeding programs that people have done a really good job of selecting for a trait that I think is important. And the two that you mentioned kind of are, are those two. So um, in the past, I usually try to have a VSH queen um, or something that has come out of an official breeding program that is highly hygienic because I, that hygienic behavior we know is just important for varroa but also for other diseases as well. And so a lot of times what I'll do is I'll get a queen from, um, I'll get a, a queen that is no, coming out of a program and then I will just raise a bunch of daughters from her and then a lot of times those will go in my drone yards. So that I'm, I'm trying to incorporate them into um, my operation or at least kind of flood the area with those genetics. And the same thing, I, so I did this with VP Queens and then I did it with um, the Purdue Queen as well um, coming out of the, the Mite Biter program of trying to just, you know, I know that those people have done really good work in maintaining a good line. So that's, that's one of them. And then, but what I really prefer is working with other beekeepers who I know are doing selection and having them send me you know, 10 of their favorite, or even one, I had a beekeeper from Minnesota who's a really good beekeeper, and he sent me one, and I made a bunch of daughters out of that one, um, and then, so I can try out what they're going to be like. Just describe it, to me when you are trying out, like if you get a, a cool queen from somebody, describe to me how you kind of test her out in your operation. Yeah, so I have, um, and, and on my website, I do have, um, a Word document that you can download, which is kind of the notes that I keep for each hive. And a lot of what I did was actually driven by the Ontario Beekeepers Association, um, how they keep track of, so they have a big breeding program. And so Les Eckley's from their transfer team came down and spoke to our club and um, shared all of their resources, which I believe are also available online, on how they select queens. And I kind of modified it for the things that I think are the most um, important. And so what, what I look for is, is I have a, every colony will have a, a tag on it. And I just staple a pig ear tag um, to the hive. And that tag has a number and that number moves with that queen. So if I make a split and I keep the old queen in that old location, then that tag stays there. 
And that tag is then associated with a, with a sheet. Um, you could do it online. For me, it's just easier to keep a binder in the truck. And then basically, if that queen dies, then I just throw that sheet of paper away. Um, and then if she that sheet of paper stays with her as long as she's alive. And then I look at different criteria. And basically, everybody is a potential breeder until they're out of the program. But it's really easy for them to get kicked out of a program. So I have some things that are like an automatic out, and then some things that are graded on like a five-point scale. So for example, if they have ESB or if they have high varroa levels, then I'm not going to you know go any further with them. Um, for me, it's really important that they're gentle. I just don't do well in the heat, and I don't like to wear a suit. <laughs> so I don't like working bees that are really ornery. I definitely know other people that are completely fine, and that's not important to them. Right. So it, it kind of depends. I don't like it when they run on the frame. Um, I, you know, so like some of that stuff is more like so for the for the gentleness, for example, I have a five point scale. And uh, one is they're very, very slow on the frame. A two is that they um, maybe will come out and check you out and start lining up and maybe guard when you have the hive open. A three is they start scouting. A four is they come out and start stinging you. And a five is I have to run from the bee yard. Right. You know, and I'll kind of, and like, there'll, there'll be variation. Like if it's springtime and it's a beautiful sunny day and they're ordinary with me, you know, that might be an automatic out. Whereas if it's in the fall and it's been a colony that's been nice all year and, you know, there's a storm coming in and I'm pulling honey, like I'm, I'm much more uh, flexible. So a, a lot of it is, um, and then a, a lot of times too is I'll make some qualitative notes as well. And a lot of times my qualitative notes match up with my quantitative ones anyway. Um, I also record how much I took from that hive and whether or not it swarmed. Um, I know a lot of people that talk about like, oh, their best hive and, you know, like in terms of varroa control and it maybe it's one that, you know, swarmed and was queenless for a month and a half. Or, you know, they'll talk about this one that didn't seem to get as big. And I had one colony, I think I took like 14 nukes from it over the course of the summer, you know, and it didn't give yeah. me a ton of honey. And then yeah. I look and I'm like, oh, well, I took 14 nukes from it, you know. So I try to keep track of how much honey, how much, like what it, what it provided for me as well when I'm judging it. That makes sense to me. Now, when you, um, when you are introducing stock, so you're doing the daughters, um, how do you choose who is your uh, head of your drone mother colonies? Um, it's not, it, I, I'm not super official. So one of the things that I really like to um, make sure is clear is like I'm not running the be breeding program as much as I'm trying to maintain good genetics. Um, so like, like I mentioned is I don't necessarily know what I'm going to need. And so I don't select on one particular thing. What I really try to focus on is you know, raising daughters off of my best bees, the ones that are performing the best under my care, and using those queens to replace the ones that I don't like. So I'll, um, so it's, I'm less concerned about having, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm fine having some diversity. I'm fine allowing some things in the yard. I don't have, you know, my joke is no one has bought me an island yet, you know, so I, I don't have a completely isolated area that I can maintain and, you know, I'm not trying to make Megan's bees. Um, 
when people ask me what my what I call them, I usually say that they're Michigan mutts. And you know what I what I try to do is just make sure that I'm constantly picking from the best and replacing the ones at the bottom. That is that that has basically worked for me because <laughs> if they show any sign of weakness, you know, just any sign of not being robust, then I pick my best um, nuke that I have over on the side and and replace them. And over time, that has really it's noticeable. It it has helped. When exactly. I first started telling um, some people in my club when I first came to this club years ago uh, that I was you know selecting, they would just kind of chuckle. And th- these were more commercial people that bought new queens every year um and they would say you know you you can't you know because of the open mating there's no way your it's going your stock is going to get worse every year i haven't found that to be true i find my stock is getting pretty much uh, better and it, what do you say like if um if you're teaching someone how to raise their own queens which is something i i love to do but yet people are telling them it's not worth it because they're going to get watered down by the drones. How do you approach that? Sure. I think, I mean, I think the big thing is to, to make sure people know the difference of breeding versus stock selection. You know, I think in, in terms of just raising good queens and making sure that you're always working with the best that you have available, I think like that should be on everybody regardless of the size, you know. And, I mean, that's that's just the thing that you do as a part of good management. Like, that's another thing that since I've started to work with veterinarians, I realize that a lot of beekeepers are more behind. You know, the, the big queen producers are definitely paying attention. But, you know, a lot of people who are just focused on walkaway splits and making splits and letting things requeen, you're just kind of letting everything requeen evenly. So I think... The stock selection is a thing that I, I feel like we kind of have a responsibility to do regardless of the size of your operation. If I was trying to do a true breeding program, I mean, they're right. You can't do a breeding program unless you have control over the stock and also unless you have sufficient numbers. You know, I'll talk to beekeepers who are really small and they're like, oh, I'm breeding out of my eight hives. I'm like, well, you're definitely rearing good queens, but you know, that's why I don't try to maintain a particular line. And what what I hope is that, so for me, I don't have a lot of commercial beekeepers in my particular area, so I'm not flooded with tons of other bees. And the people who live near me do get queens from me. Yes. Um, so I make sure that they have, they get, they get my queen. The neighbor plan. Um, yes, I'm with you. Yes. And, but, you know, and everything else I do count on the fact that, you know, the bees that are going to be putting out the most drones are going to be ones that are really successful in my area. You know, by definition, they're not going to have lots of drones unless it's a big colony. So I I, I do kind of just hope that those are ones that are well. Now, if I did have, say, an area that was flooded with commercial beekeepers, I I probably wouldn't, I would still do stock selection because I think that's still important. Um, But I probably wouldn't set up my mating yard there, you know. Right. And just with your mating yard, um, how far out do you put your drone yards from your mating yard? Um, they're, they're scattered. I have some that are within a half mile and some that are um, within, you know, about a mile away. And I, I, that is something that I do know that there are people who've done lots of research on, on where you want to have them. 
And again, like if I was doing an official formalized breeding program, I would probably take it much more seriously. Um, my goal is to have more bees in the area that are better than anybody else's. Right. You know, so I, I I try to just make sure that it's I'm I'm making I don't try to perfect it. I just try to make sure that I'm making a good effort to have lots of bees nearby um, that are really strong. Like it's more that the, the colonies that are closer to my home yard, which is where I do the queen rearing, those don't get split down really heavy. You know, they, they're the ones that I, I allow them to get really big. Um, sometimes I'll even put drone frames in there and I'll manage them um, so that they get really big. Though with those two, the ones that are in the drone yards, um, because I want them to get enormous and raise lots of drones, those usually aren't ones that um, I'm monitoring to see if they're going to be potential uh, queen breeder hives for the next year because usually I end up having to treat them because they get so monster and raise lots of drones. Yes. So what I try to do is for the yards that are close to the house are the ones that I make sure that I put daughters in from either the VSH or the ones that really made it, you know, that I'm breeding off of my favorite hives. And I, I put in stock that I already know I like, but then I don't judge how badly they do, you know, in terms of Varroa, basically. Right, right. I found um, on your um, on your website, which is a great source. I hope everybody will visit it, um, sandhillbees.com, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Because I wanted to tell you, our local bee club, we there are several of us trying to spearhead a um, kind of a bee independence project, so that at least in our club for the hobbyists, um, that among ourselves we would provide. Uh, queens and nukes for each other with the idea of um, stock selection for our microclimate here. And I found an article on there where you talked about um, clubs doing this. Have Does your club do anything like this or a, an organized system? Have you seen one that works well? Um, so I first, so we are working on it for this upcoming year. Um, I'm working close with Erin at the Holland Beekeepers. Um, which is in West Michigan, about trying to set it up. And really what it, what it depends on is having a dedicated volunteer to organize it. You know, so I think that's, that's the big thing is I think any club can do it as long as there's someone who's, who's willing to, to devote a little time into it. And um, so, so we are trying to make it work for this year, and we're having some discussions about um, – you know, what it actually looks like in very practical levels. And I think going in with the thought, again, is like we don't have to make it perfect, but there are a ton of wasted bees within our individual clubs. And, you know, we have this situation where you'll have a beekeeper who maybe isn't comfortable on swarm management or doesn't want to have any more hives, so they won't split their hives. And then their neighbor who wants another colony will have to buy one from California or Georgia, even though their next door neighbor, you know, or someone nearby in their club will have excess bees. Exactly. And that is just, it's ridiculous to me that that has been normalized. And especially like a lot of the people who are in the bee clubs really do value or say they value things like, you know, their effect on the environment. And it is really unsustainable to just 
have ex, you know, bring in bees from a very far place and then effectively just waste them, you know, and let them go into the trees and die or, you know, have these colonies that swarm themselves to death because they're not taking advantage of them. And especially among hobbyists, I mean, among hobbyists, like we have enough bees in the region. If people really valued them and said, okay, I have this hive that's really big coming through the winter, I mean, that's at least two hives or if not four nukes I could start for somebody out of it. You know, and that's a, a really, really precious resource that I think we're just kind of letting go to waste. Um, so the, the ways that we're looking at actually implementing it, though, is you know, you've got this group of people who have excess bees and who aren't trying to grow their operations. And then you've got a group of people that want bees. And then trying to get, you know, one of the big obstacles that we found is the people with the excess bees aren't comfortable making up nukes. And so what we need is kind of a group of volunteers who would be kind of like maintaining a swarm list where you say, okay, you know, Judy over here has got four hives. She really doesn't want to expand anymore. Can someone go over there and help pull four nukes from those hives? You know, and, and then also just figuring out ways that, you know, who gets paid for the bees and who gets, you know, all of those little details need to be sorted out within the club. Right. But... It, I mean, I think for me that's one of the most important things about being a club is actually supporting each other in terms of resources, you know, and, and, and keeping bees within that region. I agree. And in our club, I've seen a couple of people go from, you know, I don't want any more hives than I have. And then um, one one in particular, because I, I really pushed her to um, make some splits because she has great bees and sell them to some people that uh, that needed them. And she was hesitant mm -hmm. to take money for them. But I'm like, no, no, you know, you're not only are you going to make sure they have better bees and they can get off a truck, but also... You know, it's nice to have some some change to go and buy the latest bee gadget to play with. And so well, even, the times yeah. I've seen that, it's like it's it's like you take a jump in your beekeeping and it kind of gets more fun. Um, when you when you start, um, you could look at it as sharing or um, selling, you know, either way. Exactly. And when you when you have the when you get the money up front, too, like you can sell enough from a single colony. You can sell enough nukes from a single colony to really support it for what it needs in terms of feed and mite treatment and new frames for the season, which means that regardless of how your honey year turns out, you've made a little money. And for the people that really don't need the money, I mean, you could donate it to support, you know, purchasing cardboard nuke boxes, you know, for the club. Like, you could donate it back to the bee club or to give it to the volunteer that came out to help you make this the splits. Even if someone just said, I want more bees, and just, even if they were donated, as long as they're not going, as long as they're not going to waste. I think the other thing, too, is that this is another context where I don't think it's bad that people buy queens, um, especially for us in the north, that when people want bees and when I can split my highs is different from when I can have mated queens. And one of the things we talked about at length is, you know, if I give everybody a queen cell in the spring, that's fine. But, you know, for a beginner, that's a hard way to start. So I think this would be a scenario where you could um, go together and purchase, you know, the, the club could purchase a box of 50 queens 
and then make 50 nukes available to sale. And again, you're, you're keeping the bees and the comb local to the region, and that can get people started at least. And then later in the season, um, I really try to teach a lot where people can requeen in the fall, and then they can requeen with, with a local queen. I love that. I read that on your website. I mean, the whole idea, because we up in the mountains here, we have the same thing. We're much later, like when people are wanting queens early to make their splits, it's not good mating weather yet here. Mm -hmm. And, but I loved your, the pattern that you said about, you know, get, get whatever to get it, to get it going and then requeen, requeen with your selected queen later in the season. And, and plus, I mean, that's what, um, my main, uh, one of the main ways I keep, have kept my apiary healthy is doing late season, a lot of late season splits because the, mm-hmm. I mean, not only do I get so much better, uh, mating, but then also that's pretty much when they need those, uh, when they need a, a reset on their mites. So, Mm-hmm. Now tell me about you're the founder of the is uh, Northern let's see Northern Bee Network. What's it called? Yes, it's called the Northern Bee Network. Though I have had people request that it's called the North American Bee Network because they felt like I was being a, a latitudist. I think, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm which I'm not. It it really came out. So the the, the issue for us is that um, you know. We, we push a lot like, oh, you should have local queens or which, again, it's not something that I feel strongly about, but that, you know, that you have to have this, like, you know, these local bees. And a lot of times people who are at small scale have a hard time finding the bees. You know, there's the, the demand is there, but it's hard to find. So that was one thing is, is making a, it's basically a directory. And so that people who are selling um, local queens and local nukes can, um, just have it's basically they just get a pointer on a map and then if you click on that pointer it gives contact info and a description and it is a static page which means that people can't change their own info on there they email it and then a form I get a form and then we post it on there as a directory and then we try to update it once a year Um, because I didn't want to turn into like a conversational forum it just really does operate as a directory so people can find um, other people who are selling nukes or um, queens or that are interested in just trading queens. Um, that's another thing is I get a lot of queens by just, you know, trading a box of virgins with someone else. And the other reason that I've ended up really liking it, though, is that, you know, I my demand exceeds my supply by quite a bit. And so I can say, you know, I don't have any queens available, but go to the Northern Bee Network. And I don't mind being listed there because I know that there's a bunch of other people listed there. So um, because that's another thing is a lot of the queen producers, because their supply is so limited, didn't want to be listed at places or didn't want to give their name out because they already have more than they need. Um, And so I've really liked it for that reason. The way that I tried to set it up is that I don't care who signs up as long as they're transparent with what they have. You know, so if they're raising queens, but they buy a breeder queen in every year, that's fine as long as people are knowing what they're getting. Um, I think that people can make their their own decisions. I, I started it um, because there was a lot of talk about trying to start, um, when, when I got involved with the um, Heartland Honeybee Breeders Cooperative back 
I don't know, maybe like 2012 or 13 when they started it, there was a lot of talk about all these different states that were doing queen breeders associations and, you know, where everyone got together and kind of picked out these same selection criteria and they wanted us to start one in Michigan and I started to talk to people in Michigan that were, um, that would be interested that were producing queens and a lot of people were actually doing a really good job at producing queens already and they didn't necessarily, you know, and, and people have different things that they're selecting for and they didn't necessarily have all the same vision and it didn't seem to be helpful to kind of force them to talk to each other because a lot of them too were already talking with each other. And so when I was trying to figure out what we actually needed, it seemed like the big gap was not necessarily a group where tr everyone tried to make the same bee, but more a place where um, people can find the bees that are available um, near them. Yes, I love that. I mean, the, uh, for the first time here locally, um, we're pretty close to Asheville, and there was someone in Asheville who um, was selling uh, cells, which and also they, they came with a little educational packet on how to introduce cells. And like you mentioned with uh, virgins, now once I got to where I felt comfortable with getting virgins from breeders that I was interested in, then I don't know, it really opens up. And of course, now that I find out there's people wanting to trade, I could get in all kinds of trouble. I know, it's wonderful. <laughs> so, um, but I'm glad you brought up the cells because that has made a huge difference for us. Um, and I try to do, and, and that's the same thing, just in terms of meeting demand and providing people with good genetics. I don't make money on the cells, especially just because when someone comes up to pick them up, I'm, we're going to sit and talk bees for like an hour, right. you know. And so every sale, I, I definitely, if I'm getting paid by the hour, it does not work out well for me. But I do treat it more like a public service. Like people do, you know, they want to have access to good genetics and they can I can provide them very easily with the cells and the you, reason how that do I, you teach people to introduce them how do you tell them to um I definitely should it is it is on my list to have a little packet to hand out with every cell that would be much easier um when I do it it depends so a lot of times I do transport open cells so if people come in with a, a, a lot um like I'll have people come with a nuke box filled with bees and I'll just put a frame in that has, you know, 45 open cells on it and they can just bring that home and then they just stick it right into the frame. I've done demos for people and usually when I, when people request a demo, it usually takes about two seconds and then they say, oh, that's it? Because, you know, all you do is you take out a brood frame, you make sure there's enough space, you put push the cup into the brood frame like right at the top mm -hmm. and then you put it back in and then the only thing that I make them do is write down on the top do not open until and then I give them a date and that's I think where people mess it up a lot is they go in there and peek at it to try to like as if that will help right <clears throat> and you can't do anything useful if you open a hive that has a virgin in it or a cell you know the only thing you can do is mess up the process and so I'll tell people to wait um, until much longer than they think it is because it either works or it doesn't. And if it does work, then yay. And if it doesn't work, you just recombine it. 
So you get them to, um, say, bring a nuke box with a few frames of bees, that type, and then you put the cell in there? If there, it, it depends. Sometimes I'll have people bring a nuke box, but I have had the situation where someone showed up with a nuke box full of disease. Um, I've had people show up with a nuke box with not enough bees to keep the cells warm. So it, it, I will, I'll distribute cells basically from about 72 hours till the day they're capped. And then I'll do it again um, when they're really ripe and just about to emerge. And then there's that gap in the middle that I won't distribute them when they're fragile. Right. So if they're capped, I'll put them in a, um, a cell protector. And when they're, when they're larvae, though, they're pretty hardy in terms of temperature shifts, much more so than when they're pupa. And so it, it kind of depends which stage they're in. So if, they're, if someone's just coming to pick up an individual cell and it's already capped, I'll put it in a cell protector and sometimes they'll just put it in their pocket and drive home. Um, I'll have someone who just brings a little tube of paper that the cell fits right into and I'll drop them in those and he puts them in his chest pocket and drives home. Um, a lot of times people will bring like a little cooler, you know, just like that can hold like a little tiny cooler and they'll put a, a warm pack and a or even a bottle of warm water with a towel on it and we'll set it in there. Um, I've kind of been taking pictures of the things that people bring. Some people bring, you know, I've had people drive from a very long distance and then in those cases, if they're driving a really long distance, I'll have them bring either an incubator if they're sealed or um, a nuke with a space for a frame and I'll just drop the frame in there and charge them for the frame. Right. And how do you tell them, like, um, how many, how long does the nuke sit before you introduce the cell, sit queenless? Um, it, it doesn't have to be that long. So I talked to some beekeepers actually this weekend up at the um, meeting, and they, they say they wait five minutes. So wow. I usually, yeah, the, the cells are really easy, especially for the ones that are in the cell protectors that the bees can't tear down. You know, by the time she emerges, they've been queenless for a long time. And, you know, so I usually I'll tell people if they can do it the day before, to, you know, pull the queen out the day before. And sometimes one of the reasons I tell people that is it's just nicer too because then I know that when they come and pick up the cell, they're going to be ready to go deal with it right away. Right. Um, and so, but I don't feel strongly that it has to be the day before. The, the cells are very, very forgiving. Um, the other thing that I really like with the cells is that, you know, a lot of times the people who are requesting queens really don't need a queen and um which is another thing on my website which now i'm giving up my secrets but it says you know there's a tab that says help i need a queen and it's actually a trap to tell you why you don't actually need a queen oh i, I love that page i love that page <laughs> because i go through this every every late summer i get all these calls do you have a queen and i just i just i'm so protective over my queens and i just hate for them to kill them you know <laughs> Right. And that, well, and that's the thing. And most people just don't know. They open up a colony, they see, they don't see a sign of a queen. And then their first thought is, I got to go buy one. And again, it's the same thing as with the nukes is, is people aren't really paying. It's, it started to feel kind of wasteful. And there's a lot of people that are like, well, you know, if it's 20 or $40, that's, I'd rather have that. And then I have the peace of mind. And, you know, cause people do get really anxious about their bees. And when, 
you know, I put a lot of work into my queens and they're not going to leave my house unless they're big and beautiful and are laying well. And like, that's something that takes a lot of work to get to that point. And so I'm not comfortable giving it to somebody, even if they are paying money, knowing that she's just going to die. And that just doesn't feel right. And there's a lot of people who just request queens and they're like, yeah, I'm not sure, but I'll just feel better, you know, knowing that she's in there. Oh, no. <laughs> Whereas, and, and I get that all the time. But with a cell, I don't really care. You know, I put in minutes per cell, you know. And so, you know, like you have to set up the starter and all of that, but I don't have to make up an individual mating nuke for it. I don't have to come back and mark her and check her and, you know, check her lane pattern and so if somebody, and again, if somebody's not sure, if, if they put in a cell, then, you know, the consequence is just much lower. I agree. And I tell you, there is nothing that made me happier to pay whatever a queen rear is asking than when you see how much work goes into the mating nukes. And um, it just, it seems really too low. Most of the prices seem too low once you know how much work goes into it. Yeah, sometimes we teach a queen rearing class, and a lot of the people who take the class end up not raising queens, but the other value is at least they understand why they cost what they do. Exactly. Yeah, yeah the cells it, it and virgins are so much um, easier just to get to that stage, although virgins, the introduction is kind of a, a trick, but um, I, I've had pretty good luck with it, but I would like to, uh, that's one of the things, the little group at our club, we want to, to teach um people how to requeen with cells so that that so that they can get more um, self-sufficient and we will be able you know to provide more because like you said that's a lot quicker it's a lot quicker the other thing that I've been able to do as well is work with clubs and they'll come you know the club will will take orders for 30 cells and then I can have one person come to my house I can provide them with 30 cells and then they can go back and distribute them. And that's been, because, you know, I'm, I'm just really time limited with my job. And a lot of other, a lot of other queen producers don't want to get involved with hobbyists because of the hassle of the sales. But I think you would have access to a lot more things if you're not going to say, I'm going to send 30 individual hobbyists to your house <laughs> on separate right. nights every week, you know, whereas like it would be much easier if you say, I'd like to come make a group order. What is your minimum? And, you know, it, it would allow you to have access with a lot of people because that's the other thing is we're having a lot of people that just don't want to sell the queens they have to smaller beekeepers because it is so much work. And so if we can reduce that obstacle, um, it, it can make access much better. That's that's so true, and th th I'm really excited next year about just just trying to um, to get members of our club more comfortable with some of these techniques. Because once you do them, then I don't know. It's it's just like you got more traction in the in the whole mm -hmm. thing. So um, so what are you um, excited about next year to be working on in your home yard? Oh my goodness. I know this is the hardest time of year because I've started to get all the ideas and it's so far away from when I can actually implement them. Um, so I, I am interested in doing more two queen systems for honey production. Um, that, yeah, that's something that they used to do in Michigan um, in earlier years a lot because our honey flow comes on really strong, but it's pretty early. 
And so having more workers per super. So that's that's a thing that I'm just interested in trying just for fun. Um, and then really, you know, I've been working on overwintering nukes and making these late season splits. And it's something that I've only been working on for about four or five years. And so, you know, it's I can I can tell people the things that I've tried and how it's worked out for me, but I'm definitely heavily in the experimental stage. So I really like taking colonies and um, I'll, I'll leave some of my bigger ones to collect honey off of the, the late season, but to, to do a lot more um, splits as both a way for colony increases and then as a way too for varroa control in, in the late summer. And what is your favorite overwintering configuration where you are with the with the nukes? I saw that you, you in your grant you had compared them, and I wondered how that worked out, what you settled on for your home yard. Yeah, so th- th- what I settled on is um, they all kind of work well differently. Um, so I definitely like using single deeps probably the best just because um, – you, it, it's just so much more forgiving. So I did a lot in those polystyrene boxes, and I liked those for convenience. So those are just five-frame polystyrene nuke boxes. And they're, so those are the ones that I use where I make up really small nukes in the spring, or sorry, not in the spring, in early July. So I'll make them up as basically two-frame nukes, and they have to build to five frames by the end of the season. And then, and my goal with those is to try to get them where I do the least amount of work possible and overwinter them. And those are my packages for spring. Right. You know, so those are the ones that I'm going to, to bring out to my bee yard to replace dead outs. Um, I also really like just using a single deep because for the same reason in the springtime, all I have to do is set another box on top of it and it is ready to go in the spring. The the downside with those polystyrene ones is they're hard to expand. You know, if they don't if they get pet to six frames, then they're going to abscond. Right. You know, so they're they're not very forgiving. Whereas if you have a six frame nuke in a ten frame box, that's fine. If you have a seven frame nuke, that's fine. You know, they grow those polystyrene ones just explode in the springtime. And so um you have to be really on top of getting them out and getting them in full-size equipment, and these other ones are just more forgiving or having them in singles. Right. Um, you could do the same thing for people who do all mediums. You could just do two mediums. Right. You know, that would be that would be effectively the same. That's uh, Two mediums has been the smallest I can overwinter outdoors because uh, I use all eight-frame mediums. And okay. That, that, uh, it's like 16 medium frames. Um, that, that will work. And uh, my experiment this this winter is the bee barn. Um, I'm trying I'm trying to see if I can um, overwinter uh, like eight frame singles mediums in the bee barn to see what happens. Yes, and there's a lot of interest in indoor overwintering. And actually, the conference I was at last week was Rob Curry was there, who's doing a lot of work on indoor overwintering. Um, we've got a lot of people in Michigan who are really interested in that. Um, I've done some experiments in my basement, and they've ha- I've had mixed results um, with them. But one of the things that was brought up at this conference last week is a lot of times the people put their worst hives in the bee barn. Right. And so it doesn't look as good because, and that's definitely been my case. I'm like, oh, these are never going to live outside. 
well, I'm just going to stick them in my basement and see what happens. And if half of them win, live, then, you know, that's still a bonus because they would have all died outside. But um, it, it would be it would be really, I'm really interested in, in overwintering indoors and having different facilities. And this is, um, this is a free flying setup. So they have little tubes going to the outside. And um, it was really fun. A, a, someone on Facebook sent me a picture from the, the uh, Avery County, which is also in North Carolina, the mountain. And it looked like maybe the early 1900s. And there was a, a bee barn the fellow was standing in front of with all the little entrances on the outside. So it was fun that, that there was a, a precedent. We we get real temperature, big temperature swings. It could be quite warm. Yeah. And then, it, and in fact, that's what it's doing right now. It's like 70 degrees and then it's dropping to 13. And um, so I'm hoping that the, just them being in, in the barn with insulation, uh, that I can get a smaller uh, configuration through with, with the thought of um, having nukes to sell to club members and then also for my own yard. So it's it's yeah. fun. The insulation, I mean, there's a lot more debate about insul. You know, for a while it was just like cold doesn't kill bees, water kills bees. That's what the you know. And now it seems like people are really trying out some insulation and doing doing different things. Yeah, though I have mixed feelings on that. I definitely, I definitely for the smaller nukes and the smaller colonies, they like we know that they can't handle the temperature swings that a big colony can do. Um, but I'm really cautious when I talk to people about, you know, everybody will ask me what I do to get my colony through winter, and they want to know how I wrap the hive. And I'm, I'm kind of cagey when I respond to that because I think a lot of times people focus so much on how you wrap the hive and, you know, do you have an upper entrance? Do you use a moisture board? Do you use a quilt box? Do you insulate? Do you wrap in tar paper? And the thing that matters is whether or not the colony is big and healthy. Right. And, and I sometimes think that, you know, but people in October and November, they're getting anxious and they don't have any more control. And so it's like, it's the questions about how you enter your hive seem less about bee care and more about like a therapy session. Absolutely. About, <laughs> and so I'm like, well, I'm not a therapist. I'm a scientist. And like, I can tell you have anxiety about your colony but like for me in October, November, December, I don't do anything because either I've done my job well over the summer or I haven't. You know, the only thing I will do is I will do an oxalic acid drip. Right. Um, but that's one day if I get around to it. Because if I've fed them over the summer and in the fall, like if they have had access to enough food, they're not going to starve till they start raising brood. You know, it, even in the worst year, you know, they're, that's just, there just shouldn't be anything wrong. If they die in that early part of the season, it's because I didn't manage disease during the summer. Right. Yeah, it's February when I get nervous. <laughs> when, yeah. You know, because it's like, like February, you're almost there. You're almost there, but not quite. Yep. Yep. And February and March is where you start having like food issues and they're raising brood and things get a little more delicate and maybe there's some things you can do. But um, even so, like I, I think... People like to talk about how you overwinter more than the quality of the animal that you're overwintering. And so I think there's a lot of, a lot of misplaced focus there. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause I mean, to, to me, it's just, there's, there's kind of like X amount of bees required to get through a winter here and X amount of pounds of honey. And if you've got those things, then 
they really yep. they can they can do with the other. Now I have gotten kind of interested in terms of um, you know does does some insulation reduce any stress or that type of thing. So I am and uh, I'm going to be talking to a beekeeper up in the uh, Canadian Yukon. <laughs> so I, I'm sure I'll get an education on uh, on some insulation. Yeah. The um the Canadian Kappa the Canadian Apiculture Professional Association, what it, whatever Kappa is C A P A, they wrote a really nice document on overwintering, and also there's some old USDA um, documents and some studies that came out of the Wisconsin lab back when there used to be an ARS B lab at Madison that did a lot of work on looking at insulating and um. In most cases, having, so that the big thing is keeping bees out of direct wind. So a lot of times when you're wrapping, just to keep the drafts from coming in and from the wind from coming in is really, really important. The insulation only is important below a certain temperature, which I think comes in right around like 10 degrees, or let's see, somewhere around 10 degrees Fahrenheit where the bees start to have to use a lot more energy in order to stay warm. Um, there's an, a nice graph in, in the, the overwintering Kappa document that I'm thinking about. And so the, the insulation does have an effect or is positive for people that live in extremely cold climates. But for most of the U.S., even if it dips down to extremely cold, having that insulation on there can actually slow down brood production in the spring because you also insulate against the warmth of the sun. And it and so it goes two ways. There's an old document from the 70s where they kind of did all these thermoclines and looking at the temperature within the hive and found that they called it a check colony that they did nothing to and wrapped colonies and insulated colonies. And they all kind of turned out the same in the in the long run. And so even though there was like the, the wrapped ones started brood production a little earlier, once the other one started, it was much more, um, much more quickly. Interesting. Yeah. That's where, we, boy, we get, um, those, uh, like when they start raising brood around, you know, February and March. And then if we get the whole polar vortex thing, I just go, Oh no. Cause that's, I've lost some, you know, spread out on, on brood and just, they couldn't, they couldn't be that spread out. And then we dip, you know, the, the dip, the dreaded dip. So Mm-hmm. Well, Megan, I could talk to you absolutely all day, and I was so sorry that I missed you. You were at the Eastern Apiculture this year, weren't you? Yes. And I, I'm I'm really bummed because I see from your website you're trying to stay home more. Um, but, <laughs> yes. But I r- enjoy uh, your the YouTubes that are out there and the other podcasts that I found. It's you, you have a great way of teaching, and I just am so appreciative that you're so generous with your knowledge. And just your website is a is a huge resource, and I am I thank you very much for that. Well, thank thank you. That's very kind. I am trying. I'm I'm not trying to teach less. I'm trying to put more online and less of me physically traveling around. So I am doing. I'm I've been doing a lot of casts um, or meetings in with other clubs online, and that's been working well. And then I am hopefully going to take this winter to try to post a lot more things. So. Excellent. Yeah, that's what I think. Our local club. They're um they're looking at the whole technology side of how we can um, host you and also invite other clubs to come. So we're looking for a spot where where we could do that. So thank you so much for all you do, and thanks so much for taking the time today. 
You too. It was really nice talking with you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Milbreth. I certainly did. Next week, I'll be talking about the bee barn. The little baby hives are in the barn, and I'll be telling you about that. But first, let me express some gratitude. Thanks to each of you who share this podcast in your social media places. It really helps people find the show, and that's exciting when new listeners tune in. Also, a very deep thank you goes to all the patrons over at patreon.com slash fiveapple. It means so very much to me that you have chosen to support the show as farm crew. So gratitude to supporter and patron Michael Clancy, patrons Jason Duncan, Mandy Shaw, Mark Smith, Dean Richardson, Wayne Richardson, Chuck Jenkins, Matthew Skeen, Susan Howitt, Darla Luke, Deborah Palmer, Chris Palgrave, Jeff Tillander, Will Chin, and Bruce Hunt. I appreciate all of you so much. And if I'm mispronouncing your name, uh, write and tell me because I will be thanking you on future shows too. So help me get it right. Have a wonderful week and I will talk to you all very soon.